Welcome to Get Up in the Cool, old-time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. This week's friend is Linda Danielson. We recorded this last weekend in person, socially distanced, in her carport in Eugene, Oregon. Shout out to Ryan B. Dooley, Jim M., and Logan Trussell, Get Up in the Cool's newest Patreon supporters. Thank you so much. It's a lot of extra, not-as-fun work to keep the show going during the pandemic. I'm spending a lot of time at a computer instead of at festivals and in my guests' homes, so it's really helpful for my mental health to get increased support right now. Thank you again, it means a lot. Just a quick apology before we get started, there's some irritating lawnmower noise in the background for the first six or seven minutes. I tried to edit it out, but it's particularly irritating during the first few minutes of dialogue. It gets better almost immediately, so hang in there. Stick around afterwards and I'll tell you how to keep up with Linda Danielson, but first, here's our interview and jam. Enjoy. Thank you. 
Grace Tune. Linda Danielson, welcome to Get Into the Pool. And thank you for inviting me. And what did we just play? That was the Spruce Toppers Polka. <clears throat> and I had no idea whether it meant the guy that climbed to the top of the spruce tree to top it for logging. Yes. Or the spruce top of a fiddle. Very good. And when I tried to find it on YouTube, um, I got some very funny responses. Uh -huh. It was something for um, for slinky-looking toppers. Okay. Um, sexy clothing. Sure. And there was something else that argued about spruce tops or mahogany tops for guitars. Okay. But it's it's something of a rarity. I learned it probably 45 years ago from. I think, Rusty Madrell, my friend Stuart Williams, who was there at the same time, thinks we learned it from Don Gish, it was one or the other. Probably it's from Canada, but um, I've never heard anybody else except the three or four of us play it. Wonderful. <laughs> so, was that in Oregon? That was in Oregon, yes. So you're here today to talk about Oregon fiddling. By and large, yes. Um, I turned from a violinist into a fiddler in Oregon. Yeah. And I came here, I came here at a time when, uh, I think it was kind of a special moment in the history of Oregon fiddling because there were a lot of people who had immigrated to Oregon, but who came here with developed fiddling styles from somewhere else. So there were Missourians hearing Scandinavians listening to people who had learned from Canadian radio broadcasts and, yes. and the occasional actual Canadian. Uh -huh. And uh, so we had these different strands of fiddling going on. And that really was kind of, kind of a wonderful moment because um, in the years since then, more and more of the people who are involved in old-time fiddling have learned here, and uh, there are more and more people who are learning in retirement rather than as young people playing for dances. So old-time fiddling is kind of a different thing now than sure. it was then. But uh, I, I found that a, a very exciting time, and I, I did a bunch of uh, collecting. Um, the, the collection is called the Oregon Old Time Fiddling Project, and it is on file at, at uh, the Library of Congress Folklore Archive, or Folk Life Archive. Mm. And I checked last night, and yep, it's still there. It's still there, great. <laughs> it, does that look like... Um transcriptions or writings about the fiddlers? What, what's well, all it's, in the it's, um, 70 hours of interviews and recordings of music. So a lot of the tunes that I'm going to be playing today will, will come from uh, people that I learned from during, during these interviews. Um, I had the luxury of being able to work with the sound recordist and with a, a fine photographer, John Bogus who took portraits of all these fiddlers. Um, casual, sometimes somewhat formal portraits. But we've got them all. Mm. 
and this was for a three-county district in Oregon, Lane County, Jackson County, and um, Douglas County. That's where most of the fiddlers that I knew well at the time were, which is kind of how it got delineated. Um, let's see, where do we go from there? So, I'm really excited to interview you because Melissa recommended that I talk to you. I'm from Oregon, but I didn't start playing traditional music in general until I moved to Philadelphia. I lived ah, there for seven years. Another then, good place to do it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and then uh, my family and I moved back here. Mm -hmm. um, and lately, in the larger, in the culture, there's been a lot of conversations about ownership, uh, about cultural heritage, and you know who's you know some kind of you know some gatekeeping and things like that. Mm -hmm. Who's inside? Who's outside? And you know, and all those questions are great to engage with and sometimes stressful. But ultimately, it's led me to think: What is my heritage as an Oregonian? Mm -hmm. What is the culture of the music here, and especially the music that um, you know is analogous to this other these other traditions that I've learned, and I've been trying to figure it out, and <laughs> I've had very little success because so many people are revival fiddlers. Exactly. And I'm just beyond thrilled that that there's an answer to what I'm looking for, and that, uh, you, that you're willing to talk to me about it, play these tunes with me. Well, I don't know as it's an answer, but yeah, old-time music has really kind of gone different directions here in the present, with, as you say, a lot of revival musicians who are doing some wonderful stuff with the Appalachian tradition, and then there's the people that that kind of uh, discovered, grew into, developed out of the Old Time Fiddler Association tradition, yes. which is um, a whole other thread, although they're kind of coming together. And uh, occasionally somebody will play an Appalachian tune at an Oregon Old Time Fiddler jam. And another, another thing that's changed is that now people will occasionally want to play an Irish tune. Yes. They don't play it particularly Irish in style, but the tune definitely is Irish. Mm. And back, uh, back 45 years ago, when I first was part of the organization, I tried playing an Irish tune, and people came up to me afterward and said, we don't like those sad-sounding tunes. You really shouldn't play them. <laughs> They're too sad. It's Speaking of gatekeeping. <laughs> so so how, how did you get into playing... You said you were a violinist turned fiddle. Yeah. When did that change happen? What okay. were you playing before? I think we need a Reader's Digest condensed version of, of a life story. My first violin teacher, when I was maybe 11 years old, gave me a book of jigs and reels as soon as I got out of the uh, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star stage. Yes, my son is currently in that stage. And it's, it's a wonderful stage yeah. to be in, but then where do you go from there? Sure. So, she gives me a book of jigs and reels. And um, when I got my first book of reel exercises, she was thinking of jigs and reels as good exercises. But when I got my first book of reel exercises, I was disappointed. Mm. 
because the jigs and reels were a lot more appealing. Okay. Okay, so you were saying when you got your book of R-E-A-L exercises, that was disappointing because yes. you wanted to play R-E-E-Ls. Yes. Okay. Oh, thank okay. you for the clarification. <laughs> that would have come across it took me strangely. A <laughs> yeah, that would have come across a little strangely. Yeah, homophones. Um, yep. <laughs> They'll do that. So... I was an indifferently decent violinist and orchestra player for a good many years and then kind of put it aside and got interested in traditional music, played some Appalachian dulcimer and oh. uh, mandolin. Where, where did you hear that and how did you get interested in that? Oh! To annotate oh. your Reader's Digest for <laughs> Yes. I guess probably when I spent a year in, in a graduate school in California. Okay and um, came back from it with the, with the dulcimer and the mandolin. Yeah. <laughs> and then finally somebody said, why don't you ever play that fiddle you have in your closet? And I said, fiddle? Oh, I get it. <laughs> and I started doing improvised backup for some of the folk singers on the Farmer's Almanac of the Air, oh, wow. which was a live radio show that I think it was KLCC that was doing that. And then I realized that, oh, you know what? This reaches back to that book of jigs and reels that Marie Riggenbaugh gave me. And I kind of worked my way into doing some of those. And, and uh, then moving to a new house, I heard the sound of a fiddle coming from across the street, walked over across the street, and found Pop Powers, Lawrence Powers, mm. with a banjo player and a pitcher of lemonade on a hot summer day. Great. And I started hanging out with him and learning to play some of his tunes and he was saying, well, it's pretty good for a violinist. Uh -huh. And then, <laughs> then a little later it was pretty good for a girl. Okay. And finally he admitted that what I was doing was playing um, second fiddle backup to him okay. by ear. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely by ear. I was always a better ear player than I was sight reader. And from there, I discovered the Oregon old-time fiddlers, realized that this, this interesting synthesis was going on of people that had come from North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, bringing a Scandinavian tradition, people that had come from places like Missouri and Arkansas and Texas, which is where Pop Powers came from, old-time Texas, not contest Texas. Gotcha. And uh, there was another strand that a lot of people were learning, which was tunes from Canada, because um, Don Messer had this radio show in Canada that could be heard on late night radio down here in the U.S. in the 50s and the 60s. And uh, some of those tunes even, even got down into other parts of the country, but the Northwest was really where a lot of those Canadian tunes landed. Mm. So we had all these different strands, which is why I puzzled and puzzled over what, what is Oregon's fiddling style and finally shrugged and decided what we have is a collection of strands that's sure. typical of what happened to Oregon fiddling. And they've, they've kind of gotten homogenized now. In, in the process of um, people who 
lived here all along. Yes. And learned from each other. And it kind of knocked some of the, the the little points and sparkles off the fiddle. Okay. But it left a bunch of people who are good at playing in groups. Mm-hmm. And I know that's been startling to some people when they became acquainted with Oregon's fiddlers. I was remembering uh, having accompanied a bunch of Oregon fiddlers to the National Folklife Festival back somewhere in the 70s. And uh, Ralph Rinsler, his well-known folklore archivist, went dashing off to get a tape recorder when he heard the Oregon old-time fiddlers playing Ragtime Annie all together. <laughs> to him, that was that was something kind of new. Huh. Did did he did he like it? Or think, was he? Oh, I think he did. Yeah. He he was quite enthusiastic about it, and he tape recorded it. <laughs> And uh, anyway, somewhere out of that, I started doing this collecting project, the Oregon Old Time Fiddling Project. And that was about 70 hours worth of recordings of interviews and music with the fiddlers in a three-county area of Oregon, which is where the fiddlers I knew lived, uh, Lane County, Jackson County, and Douglas County. And that was, that was over the course of about a year, and then it took me 12 years to transcribe it. So, Lane County, we're in Lane County now, We correct? are in Lane County, Because yep. we're in Eugene. Uh-huh. Um, that might be a name that people recognize from yeah. U of O. Yeah. Right. So, so around here, are, are those all adjacent to each other, those counties? Uh, Douglas County is directly south of, of uh, Lane County. Jackson County skips one, but okay. that's or that's because I really didn't know anybody in Josephine County who was playing fiddle then. Gotcha. So it's it's a matter of who did I know and, and where did I find them. Good origin story. I'm excited to hear about the next tune. What do you what do you want to play next? Well, uh, let's let's play a kind of a comparative version of. What may be the top fiddle tune of all time? Soldier's Joy. Sure. Um, first, I'm going to play a little lick of it, probably by myself. Yeah, sure. Uh, pretty much as it appears in countless numbers of books since the 1750s at least. And as I probably would play it for uh, Scottish country dancing, even now. And then we'll try a little bit of it, put the banjo with it, and try a little bit of it as I play it much influenced by Pop Powers, who was from Texas via California up to Eugene, and Earl Willis, who was a descendant of one of Daniel Boone's cousins from Boone's Lick, Missouri, by way of California up to Eugene. Mm. They were, they were two guys that I learned an awful lot from, mm. and I hope this will honor them somewhat. Um, so, okay, this is Soldier's Joy, more or less as it came from the books.
Now, following that, uh, let's play Soldier's Joy as much influenced by Pop Powers and Earl Willis and probably a whole lot of other of the Anglo-Celtic fiddlers, which of course I suppose we've got to say is the dominant strain in American fiddling, the, mm. the whole Anglo-Celtic tradition. And uh, that one goes like this. that mm. appears in Oregon fiddling and it's it's kind of inevitable it's as I said the major thread of most American fiddling sure I, I had a question this was is this the same man that was across the street yeah was, okay yeah this was the guy with the banjo pit and the pitcher of lemonade <laughs> I was curious uh, from you know what kind of banjo player was this this friend um that was how many years ago now? I think you said it was I, 45? Something like that, yeah. yes. I'm not sure I could tell you for certain, but there was a tendency to go for uh, four-string banjos. Okay, tenor, tenor or plectrum banjos. So I suspect that's what, what he had. Interesting. Um, I think that would have been Pop's preference. Okay, sure. interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad I asked. Yes, so am I. Yeah. <laughs> <I'll>, <laughs> it's an I interesting thing to contemplate. Yeah. Okay. Well, another major thread was, of course, the Scandinavian. 
Let's play a tune called the Polish Wedding Waltz. My dad's Polish Wedding Waltz was what Stan Gonczarowski called it. So I wanted to ask, Sure. Is the, is the idea that the title is My Dad's Polish Wedding Waltz, not him saying My Dad's... Yeah. It's not descriptive, it is the title. And, um, or both. He, he used that as a title, yeah. That's great. But it was, in fact, descriptive. Well, sure. It, it was a tune he'd learned from his dad. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you bring a Swede into the conversation, and they'll say, "No, no, that was Swedish. That was that was city popular music." Yeah. And bring a Norwegian in, and hey, come on, it's Norwegian. <laughs> but uh, there was there was a lot of interchange up there along the North Dakota Minnesota mm. border farming communities where Stan grew up, and. It was his Polish father that he learned it from, so it's my dad's Polish wedding waltz, as far as he was concerned. And is there a, specifically a diaspora of Scandinavian folks from that area that came to Oregon? Like a community? Not really a community, as far as I know, but lots of Scandinavians from that area. Huh. And um, into South Dakota and Wisconsin and uh, Nebraska, that whole area would would have sent Scandinavian immigrants here. Do you do you know when? Um, let's see. Stan came here in the 1950s. Um, there were a lot of people who were coming in much earlier than that. Junction City, for goodness' sake. And uh, Astoria out on the coast. Hmm. Those are those are places that that got a lot of Scandinavian settlement. Do you, do you know why people were coming out here? Other than you know Oregon's well, great, but you know. Yeah, Oregon had had a lot of open space. Sure. And there were uh, there were good jobs in some of the war industries, the shipyards. Sure. And uh, after, after the drought of uh, the Great Depression, all sorts of people were headed for the West Coast, any, any place you could find a landing spot. I see. So there, there was um, just, well, it was a thread of settlement that was happening from about the 1920s into the 1950s. Hmm. Uh, Stan, Stan was an interesting story, though. He, um, his wife was part of the Bohemian community that was also part of this very multinational um, farming community up along the North Dakota Wisconsin, or Minnesota border. But uh, Stan was a soldier in World War II, and when he was in port in Puerto Rico, he picked up a, a fiddle, it was a pretty decent fiddle apparently, and using his mess kit fork, he scratched into the back of it a map of the islands that he had gone to during his military service. Oh, wow. And he said, don't know where that fiddle ever got away to. And I so wished that he had hung on to it, but... Uh, well, maybe this can be an opportunity to, to find it again. If anyone has... <laughs> A mysterious <laughs> fiddle with a fork-etched map on the back. Anybody know where Stan's fiddle is? Yeah. <laughs> well, he certainly wished he, he knew by the time I talked to him. 
What key was this in again? Uh, this was in uh, G. Okay, let me get back down to G real quick. Right. I'm just yanking you all over the place with tune with tunings. I think we're good. Great. Okay. My dad's Polish wedding waltz. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Not your dad or mine, but Stan Gonczarowski's, but that was the title he yeah. used. <laughs> okay. Um, it's probably one of those top 40 um, urban tunes that, when it got to this country, entered oral tradition hmm. and became what we think of as a folk fiddle tune. from particular people, hmm. but uh, we also have to realize that they've been rattling around in my head for all those years, and so what I'm actually playing now may or may not be exactly what, or terribly close to, what Stan played, but it, it's, it's respectfully close. Sure. <laughs> and I do remember during that, uh, that collecting project, having recorded a tune from Jonas Cox down there in, in Jackson County. And I said, oh, that's an interesting tune. What is that? And he said, 
well, shucks, you ought to know I learned it from you. <laughs> and no, I didn't recognize it. <laughs> you know, sometimes the folk process is slow, and sometimes it's incredibly fast. Absolutely. <laughs> Suspiciously fast. <laughs> yep. So there's, let's recap, there's the, like, the Anglo influence. The Anglo-Celtic, yeah. yeah. Then there's the uh, the Scandinavian from the Dakotas. Yeah, let, let's say Scandinavian Northern Europe. Yes. And a lot of that, as I said, is, was uh, from the city tradition that then got into the country tradition, entered oral tradition here. You know, those mix more than a lot of people will like to admit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. People like, you know, they're like sort of pure drop, you know, of, uh, of tradition. Mm -hmm. It's like people like pop music back then, too. Yeah. Oh, sure. <laughs> and a lot of fiddlers now play um, country music and yeah. uh, they'll, uh, they'll play things from all sorts of sources. Sure. And another interesting source that came to Oregon was Canadian fiddling. We're right up here close enough that it was very easy for people to get the late night radio broadcasts of Don Messer's fiddle shows from Canada. Um, they, they probably occupied a, a cultural realm sort of similar to what Lawrence Welk was. In the 1950s and 60s, and even earlier, actually, that was kind of the peak of, of popularity. Mm. My, my impression of both Lawrence Welk and of Don Messer is that they had this sort of, it was like based in folk music, mm -hmm. but it was sort of a, a, a flashy sort of modern Absolutely. presentation of yeah. it. Yeah, I think, I think you're right on both counts. And... Uh, Canadian fiddling is is very sophisticated stuff. Sure. There, there's uh, there are a number of threads of it, but um, what what I'm mostly thinking of is, as you said, that that kind of sophisticated, somewhat city-based stuff, and what was coming out of Western Canada. There were there were a lot of people who who learned those tunes, and there would have been some people who were from Canada. Um, Wally Bloom was one of the people that I listened to here a lot. He and his family had come down to Crow, which is a small community near Eugene, and uh, Wally learned a lot of his tunes from recordings of Canadians, but. He was born up somewhere kind of on the edge of settlement in Saskatchewan. And he'd learned a lot of his, his early tunes from an uncle on his mother's side, who was very Scandinavian, but played a lot of Anglo-Celtic tunes. So you see this theme of mixing. Yeah. Lot, lots of mixing on, on all sides. And there were a lot of, of of tunes that came from Canada with known composers, but nobody really remembered who the composer was. Sure. And to me, that's a pretty good sign that it's entered oral tradition. Yes. <laughs> so uh, maybe we should play a Canadian tune. 
Um, I want to play the Little Burnt Potato. It's such um, a great. Title. Oh, it's it's a it's a great title. Is this and, one the jig? Yeah, this okay, is the great. jig. So, are we in the right tuning, or do you? No, I'm gonna to... I'm gonna go up to to meet you again. Okay. Little burnt potato. Yes, by Colin Boyd. Actually, composed by Colin Boyd, whom nobody remembers. Everybody remembers Don Messer or Graham Townsend. Hmm both of whom played it a lot. And I learned it from Rusty Madrell, who was an Oregon State fiddling champion sometime in the 1960s. <laughs> and he was one of those people who heard a lot of late-night Canadian radio. <laughs> and it's a tune that I still play for contra dancers. It's like a lot of Canadian jigs, very marchy. Sounds like this. absolutely impressed by your ability to pick up new tunes and just play them right off the top. We've never met before. It's and <laughs> here you are just right spot on with the accompaniment. It's quite wonderful. Thank you so much. I need all the encouragement I can get, especially for claw hammer jigs. So thank you. <laughs> yes, yes, jigs on claw hammer banjo are yeah. a particular challenge. Yeah. And, uh, an unnecessary challenge, but here I am anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and well done. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Linda, I'm having such a great time playing all these tunes, hearing these stories, uh, having some mysteries explained <laughs> about... Because I've always known that it's like someone's got to be playing fiddle in Oregon, like before yeah. the revival. And mm -hmm. I just... 
really glad that I found you. <laughs> uh, before we go into talking about the last Oregon tune and and playing it, where do people go to get your albums to hear more about the Oregon Fiddling Project? How do we find all that? Well, the Oregon Old Time Fiddling Project, actually, there is... Um, a digitized copy of the interviews, music, and also of the transcripts at the Lane County Historical Museum, which unfortunately is closed right now. Okay. But that would be one possibility. Um, its major housing is in the Library of Congress Folk Life Division, and the quickest way to find it is to go to a list of, um, of holdings by state. And if you go to the Oregon list and scroll down past 1947 and everything else that's coming along there, back down to about 1988, you will find the Oregon Old Time Fiddling Project with all the reference numbers that you would need to get to it. Wonderful. Great. Well, I will, I will include a link to that. But I also don't want I also don't want to discourage people from actually going through the process of doing that too if they're interested because it sounds like they're going to scroll past a lot of other interesting stuff and I'm excited to do that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You'll definitely see some interesting stuff in there. So that's there, and then you have some some albums. And yes, my cowgirl band, the Slow Ponies, um, just came out with a new album. It was shipped to us very shortly after we all started isolating for COVID. When we don't have any performances, it is available on Bandcamp. Great. And you can also uh, find out anything you might want to know about us and it on slowponies.com. Great. So that's that's probably your best bet. And, and there's a good sample on, on the uh, tab our tunes. Mm. So you can even hear what we sound like. Can't wait to hear it. It was a, a live performance done in the Yonkala Community Center. Yonkala is the, the area that was settled by the Applegate family mm. who were greeted by Komema, the, the head of the Yonkala Band of Kalapuya Indians. And descendants of both of those families are part of the Slow Ponies. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And one of us, bass player Liz Crane, actually owns a horse. And I, hear, <laughs> I have a follow-up question. Okay. <laughs> what is this, the top speed of this horse? <laughs> I have no idea. So you don't know if it's actually a Slow Pony or not? Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I think... Well, I, the. The name was attached to the band before I was part of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great name. It's very evocative. Sacramento Mountain Ray? Yeah. Uh, where did you get this tune? What's the story behind Sacramento Mountain Rag? Sacramento Mountain Rag. This is one that I learned probably from... Uh, I, I think this is where I learned it. From the youngest person that I interviewed. Steve Bennett was 17 at the time I interviewed him for the Oregon mm. Old Time Fiddling Project. And he was the son of a mostly guitar player, sometimes fiddler, and the grandson of a fiddler. Mm. 
and he hung out with Earl Willis, who I mentioned earlier in the interview, and learned a lot from Earl Willis, but this particular tune, the Sacramento Mountain Rag, um, I think he picked up from a recording of Junior Doherty, who was a champion fiddler in New Mexico, and Junior either composed or popularized the Sacramento Mountain Rag, who knows, but it's, it's much associated with him, and the Sacramento Mountain is in New Mexico. Oh, okay, thanks for the clarification. <laughs> yes, all right. Linda, thank you so much for giving up a little bit of your Friday afternoon to well, do this. It's been a great pleasure. This, yeah. was, this was fun. Likewise. <laughs> I very much enjoyed playing the music with you. Yes, you too. Okay. Sacramento Mountain Red goes like this. Live and Kickin', the latest album from the Slow Ponies, can be purchased at their Bandcamp page linked on the Ponies website, slowponies.com. Just click the tab that says Our Music. 
As for her work in the Library of Congress, I checked it out online and it looks like you can't listen to the recordings online. You have to do it in one of the reading rooms. So someday I'll go check that out. But until then, you have this episode to listen to. Support Get Up in the Cool at patreon.com slash getupinthecool. Order a mask, t-shirt, bag, sticker, or phone case at Get Up in the Cool's merch store. Make sure to like and follow Get Up in the Cool on Facebook so you can see the video I posted from this episode and share it with the world. Visit pitchforkbanjo.com for my instructional banjo series. Check out my other podcast, Think Outside the Box Set. It's available in all the same places as Get Up in the Cool. And everything I just mentioned is linked in the show notes for this episode in your podcast app. That's all for now, friends. Thanks for listening. Come back same time next week to Get Up in the Cool. 